so. You can be seated. Well, good morning. It is so good to be here. Uh, Ryan, as Ryan said, my name is Chase. Um, this, is, this is our first time to Albuquerque, so this is very exciting. I've never been to the desert before, so this is, this is different. Uh, like Ryan said, currently my wife and I live in Louisville, Kentucky, where I've been working on uh, my master's at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary there in Louisville. Before we were in Kentucky, we uh, are from Texas. We grew up in the Dallas area in Texas, so not far from New Mexico, but still about nine hours away from where I grew up right here. But Guys, I have to say, just being here, never having heard about this church until just a few weeks ago, I am encouraged. I'm encouraged that this church is here and that it seems so strong and so faithful. We've gotten to meet a lot of families here already, and we have just been so grateful. You, you all are wonderful. So um, glad that you are here, glad that God has planted you here, and glad that I get to be here with you and, and talk about God's word for a little bit. So if you have a Bible... Let's turn to Psalm 40. That'll be our text today. Psalm 40. If you don't have a Bible, I know there are Bibles around somewhere. It's going to be important that you've got a Bible. Um, so, so we're going to be in, in Psalm 40. If, if you're not used to handling a Bible, the Psalms are kind of right in the middle. So they're, they're easy to, to find. And when I say Psalm 40, you'll see big, bold numbers in there. And we are in the 40th Psalm. And what I like to do, I'm going to read through this whole psalm because it's beautiful and it's meant to come all together. I'm going to read the whole thing and then I'll pray and we'll just, we'll just look at what this says a little bit, what God's trying to teach us through this psalm. So everybody got Psalm 40? Everybody there? If you need help, there is no shame in asking for help. I had to ask for help for a long time. So, Okay, Psalm 40. I'm going to read the whole thing. This is, this is a psalm written by King David. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn astray after uh, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they're more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O oh Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O oh Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. 
My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Let's pray. God, you are our help and our deliverer. And we pray that you would reveal yourself to us as such, Lord, let, please let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you. You are our rock and our salvation. Amen. Amen. So a number of years ago, uh, my wife and I were enlisted to help a friend in Texas uh, do some yard work for her. So she had a lot of property, and we, we needed to help her out. So my wife... Uh, this was right after we were first married. We didn't have any kids. And, and my wife was given the really fun job of this project. She got to ride the riding lawnmower. And I was thinking, you guys probably don't have riding lawnmowers. I haven't seen a lot of grass. I just, you know, imagine rocks flying everywhere. with all. But, but my wife got the, you know, it's like a big go-kart kind of thing. And she's riding this riding lawnmower around the pastures there. And I got the weed eater. And so it was my job to go along all of the fences with this weed eater and cut down the, the tall grass. And, you know, we were in the middle of nowhere. Nobody was around. It was summertime in Texas. It was really hot. And so I thought, I'm at least going to work on my suntan a little bit. So I took my shirt off. I put my headphones in. I was listening to podcasts, wasn't paying attention. I got into a patch of poison ivy with the weed eater. Now, I don't know if you know this. Some people are not allergic to poison ivy. Did you know that? I am not one of those people. So a few days later, I mean, it was, every, I, I didn't, 80% of my body was covered in a horrible rash. I'm very allergic. I had blisters, I had boils. I couldn't lay down in a bed because the sheets hurt to touch my skin. The only way I could sleep was if I was in a bathtub of cold water. I missed work for two weeks. I know there are people who have suffered much worse things in their life but I think that was the most excruciating pain that I've ever experienced. And so it was really interesting to think about how I responded in the midst of that pain and that suffering. I was all over the place. You know, at first I almost thought it was kind of funny. I was a little incredulous, you know, and disbelief. Can this really be happening? At times I got angry. I got angry at my friend. Why didn't she tell me there was poison ivy there? This could have all been avoided. Times I was sad, just cried out in sorrow, despair. And there were times, you know, in the middle of the night, laying in the bathtub, where I doubted God. God, why would you let this happen to me? Where I doubted my relationship with God. God, did I do something wrong? And you're, you're punishing me? I don't know, maybe there's somebody in here right now that's, that's suffering. Maybe some physical suffering. Maybe you've got something difficult going on in your life. Financial troubles, relational troubles. 
If you're not suffering right now, it's probably safe to say that you have suffered at some point in your life. It is certainly safe to say that you will suffer. The Bible's very clear that suffering is, is a part of this broken world that we, that we live in. There is suffering. And one of the things that I've always been fascinated by as I've become a Christian, as I've studied God's word, is how the Bible treats suffering. I don't know if you've studied other religions, but other religions don't really have categories for suffering very well. They, they try to minimize it or explain it away, but, but our, our God tells us that suffering is to be expected, but that God is with us in our suffering, and God wants to teach us the right way to respond in our suffering, and that's what this psalm does. It's so incredible. The psalm teaches us a way that we can respond in suffering that I think is really helpful, that I think we need to grow in, in a discipline of, okay? Whether, whether we're suffering now or when that suffering comes, that we can be ready to respond this way that Psalm 40 teaches us. And this psalm, Psalm 40 that David wrote, is a psalm coming from a place of suffering, I don't know if you picked up on that. This, isn't, this, this is interesting. This is, the context of this is not really described until halfway through the psalm. So if you skip down, we're, we won't look at the first verse yet. We'll look at the 12th verse. All the way down in the 12th verse, David starts talking about what's going on in his life. He says, evils have encompassed me beyond number. Bad stuff's going on in my life, and it feels like it's all around me. In verses 14 and 15, he says that there is some sort of relational dynamic to this, that there are other people that are seeking to do him harm, that are mocking him, and that are, that are trying to snatch away his, his life, is what he says. And I don't know if, if you've ever had relational suffering, but sometimes that can be the worst, can it? When other people can, can hurt you in ways that, that other things just cannot. So David is going through some kind of relational suffering, maybe even public suffering. He was a public figure. If you look again at verse 12, though, it's interesting. He says, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So he says, there's stuff going on outside, evils surrounding me, but then my iniquities are also piling up. He sees his own sin in this. So maybe that means that his sin is the cause of the suffering. We know, if you know King David's story, if you're familiar with First uh, and Second Samuel, David had some big screw-ups, didn't he? And maybe he's responding from some of those that does have consequences, or maybe just as this bad stuff is coming, is happening to him, he is aware of his own sinful responses coming out. But what's important is he recognizes, even in the midst of the suffering, that he is not faultless which I think is tapping into that deeper truth that the fact that there is suffering in this life is proof that there is something fundamentally wrong and there's something fundamentally wrong with all of us. We have all sinned. And in some way, somehow, the suffering that we experience in this life, we cannot be separated from it. Our sin cannot be separated from that. So do you see David's got a lot of bad stuff going on, right? He's suffering. And in verse 13, he does the right thing. He, he cries out to God for help. He says, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Hurry, make haste to help me. He cries out to God for help. But as I said, what's so interesting about this psalm is this is not his first response, is it? This is not step one for David as he's suffering and he sits down to write this psalm. He doesn't cry out and ask God for help first. He does something else. And I just want to stop and be especially clear. That is an okay step one, is just to go straight to God and cry out to God for help. Psalm 38, 
just on the page before, that's what David does. He's suffering and he just says, God help me. So that is a very good response. But this response this time is a little different. Step one for David is not, is not to cry out to God for help. Not yet. Look at verse one. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Now this is subtle. But what tense is that verb waited in? Is that a past, present, or future tense? It's a past tense. I waited for the Lord. What David is doing is he's actually in the midst of a current situation of suffering, remembering another, a past time when he was suffering. And then he's going to recount how God rescued him that time. And then he's going to turn to a prayer asking God for help this time. Psalm 40 is really interesting. You can actually kind of cut it in half. It's two separate psalms that have been stuck together. The first 10 verses are a thanksgiving song for past suffering that he's been delivered from. And then the back half, 11 to the end of the psalm, then is a a prayer of help, prayer for deliverance. Isn't that cool? So what's step one for David in the midst of his suffering? Thanksgiving and remembrance. And that's what I think this psalm is trying to teach us how to do is to remember. Titled this sermon, In Case of Emergency, Remember. This is a discipline for us. So we're gonna jump in. We're gonna look at verses one to five. We're taught from this psalm to remember past deliverances. In verses one to five. So let's look again at verse one. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry, drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. So he's describing his past suffering. It felt like he was in a miry bog. He was sinking down into a pit. And so what did he do? He prayed and he waited. I waited patiently. And that just is an important point by itself. When we're suffering is when we're most tempted to not wait for God, isn't it? When things get really hard, that's when we're most tempted to take matters into our own hands and try to fix it ourselves. And we can get in a lot of trouble that way because basically we are rejecting God's help and we are saying, I'm going to fix this myself. And in doing that, we're putting our trust in false things. But David said, I didn't do that. I waited patiently for the Lord. I cried out. I said, God, help me. And then I waited for God to move. And what did God do? He moved. God listened. He inclined his ear to him. I love that language. God turned his ear to him. I said, I hear you, David. And what did he do? He picked him up out of the pit. And he set him on a rock. I don't think that can mean anything else than David was in a bad situation and God ended that situation. God helped him out of it. God answered David's prayer. And David is remembering that. I wonder, do you have any answered prayers in your life that you can remember? Just stop, think right now. Do you have any times like this, like David, where, where you have cried out to God and you know God heard you? And maybe it wouldn't seem like a big deal to somebody else, but for you, you know God inclined his ear to you and God helped you. Do you have those moments? How often do you think about that? How often do you remember that? Because that's what David's doing. David actually says he wrote a song about it. Look at verse three. He says, God put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord because David is singing this song about this time where God saved him. Why is that David's response to remember, to write a song about it so he can continue to practice remembrance in that? Well, in the Old Testament, this is 
very normal, and I think we've just lost sight of this, but this is the most common, one of the most common ways that we are called to worship God is with the verb to remember. Psalm 77 says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Deuteronomy 7, 18 is when the people of of Israel are about to go fight their enemies. God says to them, don't be afraid. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. Psalm 105, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Even in the New Testament, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. This is a discipline. This is a a normal way of worshiping that the people of God would practice as they would recount and remember and meditate on the things that God had done in their own lives and in the lives of the people of God themselves as it's recorded in scripture, which is just a written record of all of the things that God has done. And they would sit and they would talk about, they would just think about the times that God helped them, the times that God answered their prayers, the times that God was clearly intervening in their lives. Why would they do this? Because if God helped once, then he can help again. Amen? Look at verse four. David has remembered this past deliverance and then he comes to this conclusion in his heart, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Where's that confidence come from? From a remembrance. God helped me, so I'm gonna make the Lord my trust. Blessed is the man who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. He says, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So church, I think this is a simple application for us. Now, whether or not you're suffering, be thankful and meditate on God's wondrous deeds. This was a discipline that I developed uh, several years ago in a ministry that I, I worked, I worked in college ministry for several years at my alma mater at the University of North Texas. I worked in college ministry there. And one of the things that my ministry required that we do was we'd take one day a month as a prayer day, which sounds great. And then you think, well, we're with college students like 60 hours a week. So you need a day if you're with college students for 60 hours a week. And so what I would do is I would go and I would walk this trail and I, and I would walk for hours and hours and hours and I would rethink through my testimony. And God has been so gracious to me. He has saved me from sin. But he saved me from other things. He saved me from financial trouble. He saved me from uh, relational trouble. He has saved me when I was scared of situations at work. He, was, he has intervened in so many ways. And I would just think about those things. And it would stir up a new affection for God. And it would stir up new faith for me. I would be confident again, especially if I was struggling in that moment. I was like, but God is still God. The same God that has done all of these things for me, he's still my God, that same God. And it built faith. So church, do that. Remember the wondrous deeds of the Lord. But it gets broader than this. The psalm keeps going. In verses six through eight, we learn how to respond to God rightly. Verse six, David says, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. 
Now, just real talk, as I was studying this psalm and I got to these verses, I was like, what does this mean? Does it seem weird to you? Does this seem abrupt to you that he was giving thanks to God? He was talking about God's delivering him and then all of a sudden he starts talking about sacrifices and how God doesn't want sacrifices. And I was like, how does this fit into the argument of what he's been talking about? I really had to stop and, and study and think about this. And then, it, and then it dawned on me that I was thinking about it as a Christian from this side of the cross and in the new covenant, but I wasn't thinking about this the way that David would have as, as a good Jew in the old covenant in the old testament under Moses, what David is saying when he, why does he start thinking about sacrifices? Because David has been stirred up, just like I said, to a kind of worship. David's thought about what God has done. He's been delivered. He wants to respond to God in worship. And so a good Jew would say, God, I want to offer you a sacrifice. I'm so grateful. I think you guys have been talking about the, the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrificial system, right? Okay, so, so the sacrifices were a way for sinners to gain access to God because our iniquities have come up over our head. We cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. And so the sacrifices were a way for us to be forgiven, cleansed and atonement to be made for the sins for the Jewish people and so that they could enter in and have a presence with God. But what do you do once you're there? What do you do when you're in the presence of God? Well, you worship. And so there was a whole other category of sacrifices that you could offer that were thanksgiving sacrifices. And so David is saying, God, I want to come in. I want to enter into your presence. I want to worship you rightly for this act of uh, grace that you've done in my life. But in this, as he's writing the psalm, I think the Holy Spirit has prophetically given David an insight that those things, as the writer of the book of Hebrews would say, are not, are not the substance. They're a shadow. That that's not really where this ends. It's not God looking for sacrifices of goats and bulls and rams ultimately. It's looking for a greater sacrifice. And David doesn't get that, but he knows it's not really about the sacrifices that you're looking for. What you're really looking for is obedience. Obedient worship. A right response to God from the heart. Not external, formal religion but an inward delighting in God's will, delighting to do God's will, delighting to be obedient to God. You see there in verse six, he says, you don't want, in sacrifices you haven't delighted, but you have given me an open ear. In verses seven and eight, he says, behold, I've come, and the scroll of the book, it's written of me, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. The open ear, what does that mean? David is saying, God, you don't want sacrifices. You want me to listen and to obey. It's actually a Hebrew idiom that says that you've dug out ears for me in my head. It's kind of weird. I think about my daughter. My daughter is about to be three, and she's very easily distracted, as are we all. And so as I'm trying to talk to her, sometimes I have to grab her head and turn it to me and say, listen to me. And David says, that's what you've done. You've dug out ears for me so that I will hear you and obey. I like it when they were trying to get that expression across in the Greek, when they were translating the Old Testament into Greek, they actually says, it actually says, you've prepared a body for me. Kind of getting to that whole person obedience. I'm listening and I'm responding with my whole body. But why is, why is David saying this? What is, what is he getting at? He wants to worship God, and he knows that God is not really interested in just his, his 
checkmark religion. Oh God, you're so good. Here's a sheep. Okay, he says, I want to worship God from my whole heart. And what does God want? God wants my obedience. God wants my whole disposition turned to him as my Lord and as my Savior. So that, that could stand right now. If, if you're here and you think just by you being here that somehow you're checking the box and God is happy and you're worshiping him the right way, I would say, friend, that's, that's not really how it works. I'm glad that you're here, but you are here so that you can hear what God has to say from his word and that your heart can obey it. But even more that you can realize that you can't obey it. You can't really do God's will apart from God's help. I I love, just if you think about this, remember the order of things that have happened here. It wasn't David being obedient that led to God delivering him. You get that? It wasn't because David did God's will that God was like, okay, now I'm going to save you, David. No, God saved David. And because God saved David, David says, God, I want to obey you. And even that obedience is totally passive. God was the one that dug his ears. But David wants to respond to God. He wants to respond to God the right way. And that's with an obedient heart turned to God that says, I want to do your will. I delight to do your will. But still, how does this fit in with the 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 bigger theme of this psalm, well, in verses 9 and 10, we get an ex- a specific example of obedience, of obedient worship that God wants, and that is that we would remember together. I think this is so neat. Verse 9, he says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. God, I didn't keep my lips shut about what you did. I told everybody. I walked into church and I said, y'all, listen up. Listen to what God has done for me. The Hebrews did not have a conception of silent praise. That would make no sense to them. If you wanted to praise God, you had to tell somebody else. Somebody had to hear. Or or it wasn't praise. You were grateful in your heart. You were thankful. But until you went and told somebody else what God had done, you hadn't praised him yet. That was how they thought about praise. You see that here. It says, God, I praised you. I told everybody. And this, this really ties in. I think we are more of a praising people than we realize. I think it was C.S. Lewis that talked about this, that we just praise things all the time. We're wired this way. God has wired us to praise things. You listen to a really good album, and then you say, oh, you need to listen to this band. They're great. You try a new restaurant. Oh, got to get this. I don't know how many people, since we told them we were coming to New Mexico, they said, get green chilies. <laughs> praising green chilies. There's something about enjoying things that that isn't really satisfied until you get to enjoy it with somebody else. And church, we should be a people that praises God. Praises God to one another. Again, this is a discipline. I keep using that word discipline. This is something that we have to fight to do. This is something that you have to tell yourself to do. You have to work at this, okay? But it's important. We used, to, uh, we used to have a small group that would meet, and every week when we would start, we would do highs and lows. Has anybody done this? Highs and lows? Heard of this? So we would go around the room, and we would talk about something low, something that, that was 
hard going on that you needed prayer for? Which we're all really good at doing in small group, right? And you, come to, you come to small group, you're ready to tell everybody what you need prayer for, what's going on, what's hard. But we would also force everybody to, to share a hi. What's something that's going well? What's something that you can praise God for? And you would see, sometimes people would have to just kind of sit there and think. Oh, because that's, that's our heart sometimes. We can be ungrateful. And so this discipline of, of stepping up and praising God, even if all you've got is the weather's beautiful today, praise God. It's a discipline. But, but why, does that, why does that matter in this case? Because just like for our own sake, remembering something that God has done in our life can stir up confidence today. Praising together, remembering together builds up all of our confidence in God. For somebody else to say, let me tell you something wonderful, an answered prayer that God has given me in this moment today. You share that with somebody else. Well, you're going to file that away. And you're going to say, their God is my God. So if their God can help them in that situation, then he can help me in that situation if I'm in that situation too. This remembering together, this corporate remembrance builds up all of our faith and we need to do that more. Friends, that's something that we do when we're singing. Do you get that? I love the songs. This was, this was great songs today. And we're singing these things to each other. We're telling each other this is true. And so the more that we can practice this discipline of testifying to good things that God has done, the more we all have this bank of God's faithfulness to rely on when we're suffering and to say, no, 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 I know so many people that God has been faithful to. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're here and you say, I, I don't know that I can uh, point to any answered prayers in my life. I don't know that I've ever prayed in my life. Talk to some of us. Talk to people here. Ask them, what has God done for you? And hear the testimony. And brothers and sisters, praise God. Remember together. So that's the, that's the end of the Thanksgiving psalm of this Psalm 40. Isn't that beautiful to respond that way to suffering? Which is thinking about all the good things that God has done. It's only at verse 11 that he, that he requests God's aid and waits. He's built up his confidence. He's remembered what God has done. He knows that God can help him. And so then we learn that we request God's aid and we wait. Look at verse 11. He says, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. How does he know that? Because it's been true before. And so he has confidence to make that prayer now. In verse 12, he starts telling God what's going on. He's just honest with God. God, I'm suffering. It feels like there's lots of bad things going on. Not that God doesn't know, but, but he just wants to confide in his God. Verse 13, he asks for help. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. In verses 14 and 15, he asks God to punish his enemies. Some of us might be uncomfortable praying along with those verses, but we'll see how that makes sense in a moment. But then look at verses 16 and 17. Again, he says, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Those are Beautiful verses. If you're going to memorize some verses from this psalm, I think those would be great verses to memorize and then to pray. It starts with a confession. I am poor and needy. 
Do you recognize that? Do you realize you, you cannot help yourself? And suffering is so good it's in, in ways that's, I think, why suffering can be a grace to us because God uses suffering, not to say that suffering is good, but God uses suffering to help us realize how little control we actually have in our lives. And it causes us to turn to God in confidence and say, God, you can, you can help me. Be pleased to deliver me. And then he ends again with waiting. Do not delay, oh my God. God, please hurry. Don't wait. But what if God delays? When I had poison ivy, I was in all of that pain. I'm grateful for this. The, the Lord kind of brought to mind this thought, man, there are people who feel this all the time. I've actually known a number of people in my life that have some kind of chronic illness, autoimmune diseases, nerve damage, and, that, and the pain just never goes away. What, what then? What, how does this psalm work then, you know, if I really wanted to be a, like a popular preacher, I could have just stopped right there, right? Just pray, God's going to help you. If you're sick, have faith, you're going to get better. Things are going bad, become a Christian, and it'll all turn out okay. That's not Christianity. That's not what, that's not what the Bible says about suffering. As I was studying, I came across this great quote by St. Augustine who was a, an early church father, an African bishop, he said, one should not promise himself what the gospel does not promise. If you've been familiar with the scriptures, you know that this is true, that the gospel is not ultimately about our deliverance from temporal suffering. The gospel is not about our deliverance from sickness. It's not about our deliverance from poverty. It's not about our deliverance from drama in this life, ultimately. But I, I want to be clear, because I think, I know this is a good church, and so I know which side of that line you're going to err on. And I just want to stop and say, God does answer prayers in this life. God can heal you. I can't promise you that he will, but I can promise you that he can and then we have a gracious, loving God that delights to give good gifts to his children. God can help you in your job situation. God can help you in your marriage, in your family. God can help you at school. And so we should pray. And we should be glad. I think sometimes maybe that's why we're afraid to praise God for his help in answering prayers because we don't want to give the wrong impression that that's what's ultimate to us because we know that that's not. But it is good and we can talk about it. We should talk about it. We should praise God. God does hear and answer prayers in this life, and I think he does that for his glory, to build confidence, and to testify to his goodness that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But again, what if, what if we don't have hope that a given situation will ever improve? That's where we come to this psalm, and we have to interpret this song, this psalm in its ultimate sense, in its eternal sense, which is to say in its messianic sense, in its, in its sense that it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. One of the neatest things about this psalm is that this is a psalm that the New Testament explicitly helps us interpret. And we see in that that we are to remember Christ. So in your Bible, if you've still got your Bible, keep your thumb in Psalm 40. 
but go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews is near, you can see it near the very, very back of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 10. And this is an incredible book too. You should read Hebrews. But we can't catch up with everything that the author has been saying. So we're just going to pick up in in verse 5 of chapter 10. Everybody there? In verse 5 of chapter 10, he says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said... Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When Jesus said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these offered according to the law, the Mosaic law, Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. So Jesus does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So go back to Psalm 40. What that writer of Hebrews is saying is that when Jesus came in the flesh... He prayed this psalm, Psalm 40. This is a really helpful way to read the psalms and interpret the psalms is to think the psalms were Jesus' prayer book. And he says explicitly, Jesus prayed Psalm 40. That's amazing to me because what that says is Jesus suffered. This is the remarkable thing about Christianity is that we don't have a God who is distant from our suffering, who doesn't stay aloof, who tries to minimize or explain away our suffering. We have a God who has entered into our world and become familiar with our suffering. Jesus, if you're suffering, Jesus has suffered too. Your God has suffered and experienced the same thing that you have and has responded rightly. Jesus responded with Psalm 40. He prayed to his God. So think about Psalm 40 that we've just read through. Think about it on the lips of Jesus. Think about it with Jesus on the cross. Evils have encompassed me beyond number. People are seeking to do me hurt, to snatch away my life. They're mocking me. Jesus says, my iniquities are over my head and I cannot see. And that's amazing. Because Jesus never sinned. We know that. Jesus came. He was perfectly obedient. Jesus alone had no iniquities. Jesus alone didn't have to suffer, but he did. Why? Because he took your iniquities onto himself. He owned them and said, these are my iniquities up over my head. Your sins are the reason that I'm suffering, Jesus says. Hanging on the cross, suffering the suffering that you deserve, suffering in your place. And Jesus cries out to God. He says, God, be pleased to deliver me. And God did not incline his ear to him. God treated Jesus on the cross the way that he should treat all of us 
because of our iniquities as a separation was there. And Jesus died on the cross. They took his body off and they laid him in the pit. He sunk down into the miry bog of death for you. Suffered more than anyone in this room has suffered at this point. Suffered the wrath of God that every sinner deserves. And three days later, as Jesus waited patiently, obediently, then God inclined his ear to his beloved son and raised him up out of the pit and set his feet on the rock of eternal life, of resurrection life. Amen? That's the Christian hope. Jesus died in your place and God raised him up from the dead. Do you know what that means? It means that your sins were sufficiently paid for. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Jesus was perfectly obedient. David said, I delight to do your will, O God. But we know that David didn't really do God's will, not perfectly. He wanted to. I believe he wanted to, but he failed, just like we all do. Jesus never failed, and Jesus died as the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice that put an end to all the sacrifices offered in the tabernacle and in the temple, the sacrifice that was the true sacrifice that those just pointed to, and Jesus was raised from the dead, and Jesus is never going to die. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. If you believe in that gospel, that's what we call the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. He was raised from the dead. He will live forever as our Lord and as our God. And if we believe in that, if we say, I am poor and needy, but God has died for my sins, and I have been raised with Christ. If you believe that, then you have hope. That is the greatest act of deliverance that every one of us should remember constantly. We should meditate on God saving us from our sins through Jesus Christ. And we should meditate on that together. We should remember together. We should testify to God's salvation for us in Jesus Christ. And this gives us hope in our current sufferings. God may not take away your sickness. God may not change your job. Your marriage may never get better. But Jesus has been raised from the dead. What does that mean? That no matter what happens in this life, for the remainder of your life, no matter how much suffering you might go through, and as bad as that would be, and as much as our church would love to care for you in that and help you in that, if it never gets better, there will still be a day when you die or Jesus comes back where all of that will be wiped away and you will never suffer again. If you read the book of Revelation that Ryan talked about earlier, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more pain. There will be no more fighting. There will be no more sadness. God will make everything okay. And that day is coming and coming fast. And we say, do not delay, oh God. When I, when I found out that I had poison ivy, the very first thing I did was I got on WebMD. And I love that they have the little, uh, the little part on there where they tell you how long it lasts. A typical poison ivy rash lasts 10 to 14 days. So when I'm really suffering on day seven, I can say, okay, 
three to seven days left. I know it's going to end. There's something about knowing that it ends that can help us endure in the midst of suffering. The gospel promises us that our suffering will end, that we will be raised with Christ and it will go away and we have to wait patiently. Have you believed that? There is no other hope. Don't put your hope in falsehood. Don't run out ahead of God and try to fix it yourself. You can't. Please, if you're, not, if you're here and you're not a Christian, confess that you're poor and needy and know that God takes thought for you. And if you're here and you are a Christian, remember that God has delivered you. Remember Christ and remember that together. Let's pray. God, what a wonderful past deliverance that we have. That work alone by itself would be enough to, it is enough for us to praise you forever. That you have saved poor and needy sinners from our sin and given us the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. God, I do pray if anyone here has not believed that, that you would help them to believe that. You would dig out ears in their head to know that this is true. And God, for the rest of us, please encourage us in that hope. Help us to remember what is already ours in Christ and help one another to remember until we go to be with you or you come and take us all home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.